welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're featuring Mitch Gallagher. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hello, High Action subscribers. We are the New West Guitar Group, and we are here with episode 40, and our special guest today, the great Mitch Gallagher, the man with the golden voice, the person who we've all spent countless late night hours on YouTube watching his description in rapid succession about every detail with every microphone. Uh, but yeah, in all seriousness, we love Mitch. He's a great guy. He's a fantastic guitar player. Mm-hmm. And you know, Will, you brought up something really interesting before we began the discussion. You know, these days with the mom pop music stores pretty much gone, and you know, yeah, there's Guitar Center, but there really are not a lot of ways to go try out gear. Year. And I think you brought up a really good point about how Mitch serves our community these days. Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, I think back to 2013 when I would go to Alva's showroom and just get a line of pedals and AB them. And I literally tried going there earlier this year and they were just no walk ins. They're like, we're selling on reverb. And it was just kind of, it made me feel old and it was kind of depressing. And, you know, channels like Mitch. Mitch Gallagher on Sweetwater, his product reviews, his demos, we've all watched various things. Oh, I wonder what that compressor sounds like. And, you know, there's Mitch giving a review. And the next thing you know, you're on the Sweetwater app. And next thing you know, FedEx general ground shipping four business days later. So, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Mitch. I'm a huge fan of what Sweetwater does. And, you know, it's, it's an, a very important part in the whole music industry these days. July 31st, 2017, we did a concert at Sweetwater and got to go to the campus there and maybe share with the listeners a little bit about that experience and what a fun day that was. Right. Well, it's in, is it Fort Wayne, Indiana? Mm-hmm. Is that where it is? Yeah. And it's a pretty cool spot. I mean, I don't really, don't really know what I was expecting, but it was a lot bigger than I think I, it looked like a college campus. You know, exactly. You compare it to a college, it kind of looked like a college campus in certain ways and it was just inspiring. They have like a wonderful amp. Uh, they have a wonderful theater, not an amphitheater, a nice little theater in there. They have a bunch of nice studios. Um, just a real communal vibe, you know. We had a lot of fun doing that lunchtime concert with them, and in the video series, we did the Sweetwater Minute with Mitch. Right. So it was kind of awesome to get him back on here and, and kind of bring it full circle and chat with him. Uh, he's a great interviewer, and so I think it was interesting to talk to him about kind of the art of. Uh, discussing topics with people uh, in the guitar world. Right. Yep. And, uh, you know, again, we're just so grateful to have a diverse type of uh, a guest on our podcast because initially, you know, we're, we're trying to reach out to our favorite guitar players, a lot of guys in the jazz scene, um, a lot of amazing women guitarists, people around the world from all different kinds of backgrounds. And it's interesting, too, just the diversity of guitarists and the kind of career that guitarists have. Mitch certainly has a unique role in our community. So I'm excited for the listeners to get 
to check out this episode. Before we get to that, we want to thank all of our Patreon sponsors. Visit us at Patreon to join uh, our team of people who are helping us produce this podcast, where there's perks such as videos each week of the New West Guitar Group performing some standards, some of our music. So swing over to Patreon. And also Teespring, in case you'd like a really nifty high-action mug or t-shirt. Thanks to all of our supporters, and here we go. Episode 40 of the High Action Podcast with Mitch Gallagher. Okay, welcome to High Action. We have the great Mitch Gallagher here today from the Midwest. Mitch, how are you doing out there, man? I am doing great, man. I, I appreciate that introduction. I'm I'm uh, blushing. I don't know how great. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, as the listeners are going to find out today more about you and your musicianship, um, we know that you're a classical guy too. So hearing a little Manuel Ponce might bring back some memories from studying some classical guitar. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Nice way to kick things off. Yeah, man. Well, you know, again, like with our podcast, we've the three of us in New West um, have been so fortunate to get to interview um, guitar players who we feel like really are out there um, doing their thing and, you know, really like leaders in their field, not just in jazz guitar, but in a lot of other styles. And, you know, we really respect you, Mitch, because um, beyond us, of course, all getting to know you as the face of Sweetwater and the guy who has taught us so much about all these different devices that we use. Um, we also know that you're a heavy guy in terms of your guitar playing, producing, uh, writing, and um, also just your work as an editor. You know, So uh, this is, it's exciting, and we just love that, that you spent some time to come and talk to us today, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on the show. I've, I've uh, listened to some of the podcasts with uh, some of the stars you've had on, and uh, I'm, I'm honored and flattered and humbled to, to be part of the, the whole thing. And also, just great to to, uh, to connect with you guys again. When you guys were out, we did a, a video interview with you guys when you were here, and you did some playing and stuff, so it's, it's great to uh, reconnect here. Oh, yeah, man, for sure. And, uh, you know, just to kind of give the listeners some background here, too, Mitch, so you grew up in North Dakota, where there's a yep. lot of wheat and pheasants, and... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and um, and your your mom was a, a musician, right? A vocalist. Is that true? When uh, she and her and two of her sisters were young, they had a little trio called the Freed Sisters, and uh, they uh, actually recorded a a single. You know, when the Red Red Robin comes bob bob bobbing around, they did that song, and I think uh, maybe uh, Mister Sandman on the on the B side of that. And uh, my grandfather used to bundle them up, and they'd take them out, and they'd do little uh, little shows here and there. And uh, you know, it, it was uh, mainly when they were young kids. But uh, she always made sure that as uh, myself and my brothers and sisters were were growing up, we were always exposed to music. There was music in the house. And she got us into the the boys' choir early, and into the band, and, and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, they made sure we got we got started with music. Oh, that's great! You know, all the, I can imagine all the Grange halls they must have played out there. You know, and, and that time. I, I would bet so. It was long before my time, but yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. I imagine so. And you got interested in guitar when you were about in high school. Yeah, I'd, I'd say uh, 15, 16 years old is when I started uh, started playing. You know, I discovered Kiss and and uh, the rock music of the day, and and uh, you know, of course, you got to play guitar at that point, right? Oh, yeah, man, yeah, and and. Uh 
you know, back when you would go buy LPs and stuff, was there like a record store when you were a teenager in your hometown that, that had a lot of records or how did, how did you get access to the music that you wanted to listen to? And I have to think back. I don't recall there being a, a record store in Jamestown, which was a little town I was from. Uh, but yeah. uh, I remember going to White Drug and the little department store. It was called Tempo. And they would have a, you know, a, a record section in there. And you'd go and browse through the few things. And I remember uh, being blown away because I, I walked in right after I'd read about Van Halen coming out in the uh, the first interview he did in Guitar Player magazine. I went to white drug and lo and behold they actually had the album in in white drug so you know it was, it was pretty amazing the things that would show up but mainly we would go to fargo which was 100 miles away yeah. and there's a mall there and there was a music land or some music store there that had a, a much bigger selection so i could find more things there that's interesting that you'd mentioned that you, the article about Van Halen too. So when you read that and then you were exposed to the records, did did the writing of these artists draw you in just as much as the music too at that time? I I never thought about it in at that time. Um, you know, it was a it was a way to discover music because. Uh, you know, in, in North Dakota, there was no, at, at, when I was growing up, cable TV took a while to get there. Even, you know, obviously there was no internet or any of those kind of things. And so anytime I'd come across a mention of an artist that seemed interesting, I'd try to find that artist. So if they were on, you know, the TV shows, the late night TV shows, there'd be the midnight special and Don Kirshner's rock concert. And I just, I would see somebody on there and try to find the record or, or uh, pick up a guitar player magazine where I'd see one and, hey, this Van Halen thing sounds kind of interesting. I'll look for that. And, you know, I still do that today. I, I, uh, if I'm paging through a magazine or I'm on the web and I see somebody mention a name, I'll go check them out. And usually I'll try to buy the, the release or whatever it might be for, for the artist, you know, support the cause or whatever. But uh, I love finding new stuff, and that's, I guess that's how I do it. But as far as getting into the interviewing and all that, I think I dreamed in those days of working for one of those magazines. Mm -hmm. You know, I just thought that'd be the coolest thing in the world. And uh, so when I actually was hired as the technical editor at Keyboard Magazine uh, in 98, that was like a, a childhood dream come true. So it was pretty amazing. Wow. And, you know, 98. So we're talking the 90s. And pr prior to this, of course, your education had been that you studied electrical engineering and then toured a little bit and then returned to school to work in um, classical music a little, or to, to um, study classical guitar and um, music composition, right? So, right. Uh, you know, the electrical engineering and keyboard magazine, all this sort of stuff, um, when you were younger too, I mean, were you the kind of kid that would buy a keyboard and take it apart and figure out how it was working? Has that got you kind of interested in electrical engineering at that point? You know, it. it uh, I was a weird kid in high school because I was a sports guy. You know, I played football. I was a wrestler. I did all that kind of stuff. Uh, played played baseball for for a lot of years. But I also uh, was very successful in the science fair world, mm -hmm. and so uh, won second place in the engineering division of the International Science Fair when I was a junior in high school. And and so I was really into the technology. And my dad was super handy. He could build anything. He could fix anything. He could, you know, anything you needed, he could do it. Yeah. And uh, so I, I didn't really have access to go buy a keyboard and take it apart. But in the back of my mind, I think I was thinking, man, if I studied electrical engineering, I don't know what I'm going to do in North Dakota, but maybe I could go design effects pedals or maybe I could build work for a manufacturer or do something like that as a way right. to, to get in. You know? Yeah. So I think like that was in the back, back of my mind, you know? Right. And like, so this is the 80s, right? So it's like the 70s, 80s. Mm -hmm. So you're the, the advent of pedals and all this digital gear and all this stuff. I mean, it's such a, 
such a boom. I mean, a fascinating time. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the nineties and so I had my Macintosh LC two, which you could record for 30 seconds on that with the voice recorder. And I thought it was so cool to record my guitar into my old Macintosh and, um, and pedals and amps and all this sort of stuff. So I can see that it sounds like the wheels were spinning for you, not just with on your instrument and you were putting in a, you were putting in a lot of practice time at this time on guitar too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't. Uh, I didn't take any lessons until I actually went to college. There really wasn't anybody teaching in, in my little town, so I was just playing along with records. Yeah, you know, in, in those days. But then when I went to uh, when I when I studied electrical engineering first, when I first went to college, I, I played in weekend bands here and there, and then left to go on the road. Came back and studied to study music, and that's when I started. Then taking, I was actually studying with three teachers simultaneously. I was I was studying country guitar. I was studying rock guitar and I was studying classical guitar and then also, yeah. you know, going to, to college. So I had a private lessons in rock and in country and then studying classical in, in uh, college as, as my major instrument. Um, and so then, yeah, I was, that was all I did was play guitar in those days. Did, what was your first real guitar that you got around this time? Uh, let's see. Um, I, I built a guitar Shortly after I started playing with my dad, we ordered parts. They were actually, DiMarzio was selling parts. So I, I built a Strat-style guitar, and I still play that guitar today, actually. I've, I've uh, resurrected it and kind of rebuilt it and still use it. Uh, but the first one I bought that was a real guitar was I custom-ordered a Hamer Blitz, which was an Explorer-style guitar, mm-hmm. and custom-ordered it with a Floyd Rose, which you couldn't get outside of a Kramer guitar in those days. And so they somehow found a Floyd Rose and built me this Explorer and uh, took that on the road with the rock band. Oh wow, rad! Very. Yeah, very it was. Cool. It was really. You know, I t- had to take a loan out to get it, and you know, yeah. that was the whole thing, and yeah. pay it off every yeah. every every month or whatever. But uh, yeah, that uh, that was a man. It was a huge step forward. Yeah, and so and and again, even though um, you had later gotten hired for to work for Keyboard Magazine, so guitar is your guitar is your primary instrument, right? That's the instrument that you've played most throughout your your life. Yeah, as, as, uh, I, I played trombone in high school, so until I was a junior or so in high school, I was in the band and played trombone and also was in the choir, uh, right. in boys' choir up until junior high, I think it was. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I like to say that I, I have enough keyboard chops to pass my piano proficiency in college, and so I can, I can play all those white key scales and all those white key chords. I'm masterful at those, but beyond that, you know, not so much, yeah. but I was hired at, at Keyboard Magazine because uh, because I've always been a technology guy. Right. Uh, I got into computers very early. Um, I actually was teaching lessons while I was in college at a music store, and they had a little box come in that was called a MIDI interface and this little piece of software, and nobody knew what to do with it, so they sent it home with me, and that was kind of my launch into music technology, and, wow. and that's always been a huge part of what I do, too, is just studying that and, and uh, working in, in that world, too. Talking also just a little bit about when you had returned to college to get the degree in music, you know, it sounds like you were interested in education, too, because you just have this knack for, like, talking about things in a way that makes people understand what they are, too. Was that something that you were interested in, like like maybe teaching electronic music at a college prior to, of course, you looking into the Sweetwater ad and working for the magazine and everything? So I'm curious about that. Man, you really did your homework. You uh, you, you studied up before this interview. Um, <laughs> Got to do it. It is called high action for a reason, right? No. <laughs> yeah, man, that's awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let, me, let me think about that. So while I was in college, I was teaching probably 30 students a week 
uh, at a music store, uh, private lessons. But I also was kind of, I had always been the guy in the band who knew how to set up the PA, who knew how to run the four track cassette recorder, who knew how to plug stuff in and make it all work. And so when I went to college, I took a couple classes in electronic music and it, it became apparent fairly soon on that I knew at least as much as the instructors, if not more. And so the next semester I was hired in to teach those classes while I was a student uh, kind of simultaneously. So I was teaching electronic music classes, uh, which was recording and we had a Buchla modular synthesizer and a Surge modular synthesizer and, and, you know, some of that kind of stuff. And actually then the second year I was there, we built a real studio at the, uh, the college I was going to do. Uh-huh. But I, I don't know that while I was an undergrad, I don't know that I was thinking about teaching. While I was an undergrad, I was so guitar-focused. I think I was thinking, man, I'll go to Nashville and be a session player, or I'll go to L.A. and be a session player, or I'll be a film composer, or I'll do something like that, uh, you know, and, and not even really thinking about what that meant or what that required or the fact that I was nowhere near qualified at that point to do either of those things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was that was kind of my thrust, is I was going to be a guitar player. I wanted to be a, a musician. When I went to graduate school in Kansas City and focused much more heavily on electronic music composition uh, on the ac- academic side, not EDM, but the academic electronic music uh, composition and and uh, classical composition and classical guitar. Then I started thinking, you know, probably uh, teaching is in my future. At, at that point, I was assuming I'd end up at a college somewhere teaching composition or electronic music or something like that before this detour presented itself that brought me to where I'm at now. Right. Yeah, I mean, gosh, and that's such a world. Pierre Boulez, Pauline Oliveros, Milton Babbitt. I mean, it's just such a fascinating thing, you know. It really is. I, yeah, I, it really is. Yeah, I, there was a lot of electronic music at USC, too. I got to kind of dabble in, like, learning a little bit about that, some of our composition faculty. And also at USC, you know, we got Perry and I, fortunately, got to study with the great Jim Smith and the classical guitar program right. where Scott Tennant and Bill Kanengeiser um, coming directly from the history of Andre Segovia doing his master master classes at USC, um, SC always having a big classical program. Who did you study uh, classical guitar with in Kansas City? So I, I've been fortunate to study with some really great teachers. I mean, you guys, obviously, you were studying with the uh, the pinnacle there, the masters there. But uh, as an undergraduate, I studied with uh, Michael Coates, mm-hmm. uh, and he was a fantastic both electric player and classical player, which was great for me because I was coming from such an electric background. So he really helped my transition. To, uh, to classical. And then when I went to the graduate school at University of Missouri in Kansas City, I studied with Doug Neat mm-hmm. there, who's a, a fantastic player. And uh, I highly recommend seeking out his recordings. And he also wrote a book on how to make a living as a musician. Right. Um, and in fact, years later, after I came back to Sweetwater, uh, probably 2008, 2009, he was offering at that time week-long summer intensive things where you'd go and stay in his house and have two lessons a day and basically an intensive week of study. And so I went and did that with him uh, a week later, uh, uh, years later. Uh, and then since then, I studied with uh, with uh, Dennis Azabajic in uh, Chicago. So then I was also, after I came back again to uh, Sweetwater, I started taking two lessons a month. So one week I would go up to Chicago and study with Dennis Azabajic, who's a fantastic virtuoso. And then the other Two weeks later, I would alternate, and I would go to Cleveland and have a private lesson with Jason Vio, who's wow. you know, one of the, the leading yes. guitarists right now as well. So, yeah. so that was fantastic to uh, to get to study with those guys too. Wow, that's amazing! And keeping all that up amongst studying electronic music and doing your teaching, you were a busy guy by the time you were in graduate school. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. That's all I did. 
you know, and I, but I, I just, it, to me, it's not work. It's not, uh, it's not like I felt like, oh, I got to go do this. And now my schedule's so busy or whatever. It's just like, I, I can't wait for my next lesson. I can't wait to read what's happening in keyboard magazine, man. I, I'm so excited to go and work on this piece of music or go record this band or play this gig or do, I mean, it was just, Right. It's just what you do, right? I mean, it's it's your life, and I yeah. just loved every minute of it. We, we put all the balls in the air, and then we just go for it. And so then all of a sudden, you see this ad in a magazine about 1992 that Sweetwater was looking for some some people to hire. Is that true? That is true. So I had reached a point in my – I was – I was probably had a, oh, I don't know how many months left in my master's uh, program at uh, University of Missouri. And, and uh, I was just starting to think, I'm not sure I want to end up teaching at a university. I'm just not sure that's what I want to do. I like doing all these different things. I I want to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure I want to just go and focus and do that. And so I was kind of looking for something, maybe even just as a interim break to go and do something different. Yeah. Um, and saw this little ad in the back of, uh, I think it was Mix Magazine, which yeah. is a professional audio recording magazine. Yep. And said, we're looking for, for salespeople, didn't know anything about it. And uh, sent off my resume and, and uh, got a call from them and did a kind of a phone interview and then they brought me up and at the time it was a a little metal building a little white metal building in a gravel parking lot in the middle of a cornfield and uh there were there were four other sales engineers at that time and chuck surak the owner of the company was also selling full-time at, at that point and a couple of support people uh and uh i think i was the sixth sales engineer actually hired somebody had come and gone in between there. So I was actually the, the, the fifth that stuck, but the sixth sales engineer in, uh, in 1992. And so it was a, I, I had worked at music stores before that. So when I was in college, I was teaching lessons at a music store. When I was in grad school, I worked at a music store in Kansas city selling and also doing guitar repairs and setups. And I taught some classes for the public and, you know, those kind of things. So, so I always kind of had my hand in that side of it as as well um but making the move to full-time sales was a was a big jump kind of a simpler time to be in sales for music and for music products back then i mean were were you already getting a lot of music tech stuff thrown at you by about 1992 when you came over to sweetwater or was it still just kind of your classic music store type of um situation I would say that i i was already pretty inundated with it um a year or two before that 91, 90, I don't remember the exact year, but the ADAT came out and the Elisa's ADAT, which uh, recorded eight tracks of digital audio to a VHS cassette, actually, and you could chain them together to get more tracks. And and so when that came out, that kind of changed the world. And uh, I was also really deep into MIDI. So at the music store I was working at, I was kind of the technology guy. And uh, on Saturdays, I would teach a MIDI class that people would sign up for. And, and I also taught a live sound class and I taught a recording class. And so I was already very deep into that stuff and had been really since college when I taught the electronic music things. At that time, Sweetwater didn't carry drums. We didn't carry guitars. We didn't carry instruments, really, aside from keyboards and synthesizers. And so it was mainly recording gear and it was mainly keyboard technology and computer technology uh, as it was starting to come out. This was before Pro Tools. It's before, you know, uh, Studio Vision was one of the early DAWs and and uh, Logic didn't exist yet or any of those things. And Cubase was, was very, you know, primitive in those days. Um, and so it was just kind of, I got in there right when all that was happening. And so I came in with a good, strong background in technology and then was able to absorb all these things as they took over the world. And so it was, it was a great time to get in because now, you know, you think you start now, somebody's going to learn music technology, man. You got to know so much instantly, 
right? Yeah. And uh, and I was I was able to kind of slowly absorb it over the years, and and uh, I'm blessed to have a, a pretty strong memory for that kind of stuff. For whatever reason, technical things stick in my head, and and uh, so I can uh, you know I, I was able to absorb all this and and move forward both with the sales part of it, and then later moving into some other areas of the company and other other applications as well. You actually left Sweetwater again and to go back and write for EQ magazine in around 2000. Is that true too? Well, I, I came to Sweetwater in 92 and I was in sales here for three or four years. Mm -hmm. And during the course of that, I myself and one of the other sales engineers started something called Sweetwater University, where we were giving classes to the rest of the company right. on technology and things. And so once again, I'm kind of moving in that direction. But in 98, I saw, again, a little ad in the back of Keyboard Magazine that said, hey, we're looking for an editorial assistant. You know, send in your application or whatever. So I, I applied for that job because, again, that was my dream, right? I wanted to write for one of those magazines, wanted to be part of one of those magazines. And uh, I, I sent my resume in and I got a call from him that said, you know, you're an, an editorial assistant is basically a assistant, basically a gopher. Yeah. And uh, uh, you're you're a little overqualified for that. But we have an opening for technical editor that just opened up. Would you want to come out and interview for that? And so I did and uh, ended up getting hired. And so I, I went to Keyboard Magazine in 1998 as the technical editor. And then they pushed me up to senior technical editor at that point. So then I was totally into technology for, for a couple of years. In 2000, um, EQ Magazine changed some of their way they were doing their staffing and the way they were working on things. And uh, so they hired me as the editor-in-chief of EQ Magazine. So Keyboard was in San Francisco. I moved out there. Right. 2000, I moved to New York City to be the editor-in-chief at EQ. And uh, at that point, a lot of people don't know this, but there were freelance writers working for EQ, but that magazine was largely myself and Craig Anderton, who a lot of people know Craig's, Craig's name. We're doing the vast, vast majority of that, oh, that man, entire I magazine ourselves. I loved EQ Magazine, man. When I'd go to Borders, I'd get Downbeat, and I would get um, Jazz Times and EQ and rec was oh, cool. that, was recording magazine that around then too or that came oh yeah. yeah yeah they sure were yeah yeah I remember those man and I would look in there and see the pictures of the studios thinking oh my gosh someday yeah. not only do I want to play in these places I, man I'd love to have something like that at home which kind of leads me to another question because then you you came back to Sweetwater then in two thousand five. Right? Is that right? right that? So, you know, bef before we play a track of, of your stuff, Mitch, because I want the listeners to check out what a burning guitar player you are. Um, this record, Foundations, is awesome. Uh, and Thank you. Yeah, I, I think one of the golden nugget questions that I've just been dying to ask you is, you know, you had to have seen this all coming way ahead of time, the home recording advent of, like, musicians like Perry, Will, and I. I mean, we, we went to school to learn to play our guitar. Well, now... We are home recording engineers and producers and writers and composers. And, you know, I don't know, for me, about 2004 was when I started seeing GarageBand and the Pro Tools little inbox and all that come around. I'm just curious, when did you kind of see that this was really going to happen? Um, and did it, did it turn out to where we are today, to the place that you kind of saw it go to, or did it kind of, has it blown your mind how big this really has gotten in terms of home recording, the personal recording, and the professional musician like us that has to adapt to all this home recording that we're doing now? When I was an undergrad, when I was going to college, and, and you know, we were talking about playing all the guitar, and uh, they had a studio. At first, they had kind of more electronic music studios, but then they built an actual studio with a control room and a live room and, you know, the whole thing. And 
console and and uh, the whole thing. Um, and I worked in there as much as I could, but I was also studying composition at that time and and uh, learning to write music and and apply all that. So I went to my incredibly understanding and generous parents and said, "Look, I, I need a little bit of gear at home <laughs> so I can be working whenever I need to work." And so I had. I had traded a, a leather biker jacket to my brother for a Commodore 64 computer. <laughs> and I had this free MIDI interface that the music store had given me because nobody understood what it was. And uh, my parents pitched in and I got a little Yamaha DX100 keyboard with the little miniature keys, you know, and uh, at a Casio CZ101. And I had a set of, uh, they're gone now, but Radio Shack speakers. Oh, yeah. And that was my little, my little home studio. So there was no audio recording. At that time, and I'd sit there and I would play guitar and I'd program little drum parts and I'd program little bass parts. And, and uh, so that's how I wrote music in those days was was doing it that way. Um, and I even had a little notation. So so I was doing the home studio thing in 85, 84, 85, 86. Uh, uh, <laughs> On, on a certain level, right? Right. And right. so then when I was in the music store, working in the music store in Kansas City and the ADAT came out, I mean, that was such a turning point. And that was just huge that it was thirty nine ninety nine in those days, which in, you know, 90 and 91, you know, a fair amount of, still a fair amount of money, but, yeah. uh, you know, fairly expensive in those days, but you couldn't keep them in stock. Everybody wanted one at home because wow. they sounded great for the day and, uh, you could record eight tracks and do the whole thing. Wow. Um, when I came to Sweetwater, I very clearly remember Dino, who was our digital design rep, which later became Avid. Uh, bringing in the first version of Pro Tools. And the fact that you could now, again, semi-affordably <laughs> at that point in time, right. you know, record on your computer and, and work. And so I, I, all through those years, I was always buying the latest stuff. You know, it's, it's tough working in the candy store because you're constantly oh, man. <laughs> buying candy. <laughs> you know, it's, you're, you're just yeah. always tempted. But it's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so, so I always tried to stay on top of all that. And I felt it was important both from a standpoint of I just wanted to make music with it, but also from a standpoint if I'm going to be a technology expert, if you will, I kind of got to have the technology. I've kind of got to stay on top of all this stuff and know what's going on. So it, it became pretty clear by the mid-90s that it was all going to be going software and things were heading so much in, in that direction. And then when I went to keyboard and um, I remember I did a massive, massive article that compared Digital Performer, Cubase, Studio Vision, Logic Audio at the time, and there were maybe something else. There were like five, maybe it was Pro Tools. There were five programs. And so I did this massive article. I had a stack of manuals that was like three and a half feet tall for all this software and stuff. But <laughs> it was pretty clear at that point that this is the direction everything's going in. And yeah. so then through the years with EQ, seeing the changes in the professional studios, seeing what you could do at home. I mean, it, it's just been a progression. And then to answer the last part of your question, it absolutely blows my mind. It, it's so incredible what you can do. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have, uh, I, I get eyes on and hands on with all the new stuff as it comes out. And it's every time a new version of something comes out, I'm just blown away at the new stuff that, uh, yeah. that that's going on. It's, it's just, you'd think, okay, we've done everything. Yeah, no, nope. no, <laughs> no, there's always so much more to do. <laughs> yeah, man. I know. I know. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's so exciting. You know, it's just so exciting and I, and I yeah. get so inspired. I'm like, yeah. man, I got to get that program because I can do this and I can do this. Yep. And yep. no, I need this program because I can do, you know? yep. so, and I, I think it's so fun. And you think it's hard to f remember back to the issues that the struggles we had 10 years ago, trying to record something or do something, you kind of forget now just, it's just so easy to just plug in and it sounds so great. 
And, you know, I mean, man, it's just, you know, we have so much gratitude to all the product companies and engineers and guys out there that have spent their livelihood working on something as little as like a transistor or a, or a, a, some kind of thing to put in a microphone to make it a little more affordable, but sound that much better for guys like us too. Today's episode of High Action is sponsored by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff is a luthier based in Santa Cruz, California, and he brings an incredible quality of artistry and craftsmanship to the acoustic guitar. He only builds about 12 guitars a year, and he develops a very close relationship with each one of his customers. Together, he focuses on the tone and the playability that you want from the acoustic guitar. Here's a recording of me playing my Trigot acoustic. The playability is amazing, the tone is rich, so for more information, check out trialguyguitars.com. And speaking of home recording, too, so this album that you released in 2018, Foundation, I think earlier I said Foundations, excuse me, it's Foundation. Um, so did you record this in your home studio, too? It was a it was a kind of a hybrid mm -hmm. uh, recording approach because I really wanted it to have a a band feel. I, mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be a layered tracks kind of a thing. Nothing wrong with that, but in in my case, I just really wanted to. I'd written this music that I felt like it was band music, and hopefully, when you listen to the 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 songs and the tracks, it doesn't sound like a guitar album where someone's shredding from beginning to end and it's all about them. And again, that's right. fine. I, I don't have that. That's wonderful. That's not what I do. Uh, as right. a composer, I'm more interested in writing music for musicians to play together, and I felt like it should be recorded that way as well. So I was super fortunate. Uh, we had this incredible group of musicians that were coming into Sweetwater Studios for another session. So they were booked in for two or three days, and it, it happened to be uh, Keith Carlock, who's the drummer for Steely Dan and Toto and Sting and Mike Stern and all these incredible artists, just a one of the world's best, in my opinion. Yep. And uh, Michael Whitaker, who's an L.A. and Nashville session guy and composer on keyboards. Um, Adam Nitty on bass, who's a Nashville session guy. He's also a touring bassist with uh, Kenny Loggins. And so these three guys were coming in to do a session at Sweetwater with another artist. And so I was able to ping them and say, hey, if I throw you some money, will you come in a day early and just we'll just record some tracks or whatever? And so they're like, yeah, we, you know, our schedules are open. So they came up a day early. We went in and... Um, then played as a band. So we recorded all the basic tracks as a band in, in one day. Then we did the five songs in, in one day. Then after that, I took it home and put my guitar parts on it. Uh, I made a trip down to Nashville. Uh, I had a friend who, uh, who's an amazing arranger who arranged some horn parts for me. And so we brought in the session horn players in Nashville at Oceanway. And so we did those in the studio as well. But then I brought it all back home, edited it all, cleaned it all up, and mixed most of it actually on my lunch breaks at Sweetwater, sitting out at the table in our, in our diner yeah. uh, with my headphones on. And I'm mixing and editing. And, and uh, then at the end, when I had it all done and I was happy with it, I went back into Sweetwater Studio with their incredible monitoring systems and, and uh, analog yeah. gear and things yeah. and did the final touches on it. And so it really was a hybrid kind of a thing, which I think is such a cool way to work. Yeah, uh, man. I, I'll, I'll be totally honest. I've been trying to record an album for two decades and trying to do it all myself. I just never get it done. 
you know, but but having the thing of look, I got these three musicians coming in, I'm paying them. I better have some music for them to yeah. <laughs> to record. You know, I kind of got to get this together. So just having that made it possible for me to actually complete the music and and get it ready to record. That's so true, man. As a great Duke Ellington said, he only got music done because he had deadlines. You know, he had to follow deadlines. So let's check out a track yep. from the record. This is Finch Food. This is from your solo on, and um, yeah, this is this track is burning. Here we go. Mitch, oh, thanks. Thank you. That sounds good. Uh, it's good Thank to you. see you, uh, Perry, over here. And I, it's yeah, you know, the last time we saw each other was at the Sweetwater campus at the. That's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, at the company headquarters, and yeah, it was amazing. By the way, music sounds really awesome. Um, Thank very you. Impressed. Uh, some nice writing there. Nice playing. Good tone. I know you're very uh, known for getting a solid tone across instruments and. Uh, you know, it's it's nice to, uh, having been interviewed by you, a fellow guitar player, it's something that I try to uh, emulate a little bit when we conduct these interviews because, uh, you know, when you're speaking from player to player, right, and like a guitar player to, to a guitar player, you can kind of get into some questions that you probably wouldn't get into uh, when you're being interviewed by whoever who doesn't quite understand the instrument in the same way. Right, right, um, right. I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, no, no this is awesome. Thank you. So I kind of wanted to ask you just off the bat, I know you've done a, a bunch of these Sweetwater interviews and Sweetwater Minutes and these things where you get to connect with different players. Um, do you have any good stories or any good little anecdotes you could share with us and our listeners, things you've learned from uh, players that you've been able to interview over the years? I mean, I, I saw one that you did with John Schofield that was a um, really good interview and he's been on our podcast and anybody like that that you can share some stories about? Man, um, I have to think back. It, you know, I think I, I actually get asked a lot. You know, are, is this a was that guy a nice guy, or was what was so and so like, or you know, I've, I've heard they were difficult to work with. Is there, you know, and I have to say that universally, everybody that's come in has been so accommodating and and so wonderful. It's it's so I don't have any bad stories. I'm sorry to disappoint. I, <laughs> I, I wish I had some dirt that I could dish out there, man. But uh, you know, it, it's it, it, to me, it's like. Uh, it's, I pinch myself every day because I mean, who yeah. gets to 
go in and walk down the hallway and sit down with Steve I. And then a few weeks yeah. later, you sit down with Joe Walsh and then it's Eric yeah. Johnson and, and then it's uh, John Patitucci and then it's Peter Erskine. And I mean, it's just, and then all the engineers and producers and stuff. And so for me, it's, it's like this constant, it's just this constant onslaught of inspiration because how right. can you talk to these people and, and get their vibe on music and their approach and how much they love it and how passionate they are about it and not walk away from that, wanting to go practice and wanting to go write and go, uh, you know, go do things. But I'm also always learning about, you know, how, how they approach their gear and how they plug things together. And, you know, yeah. it was, it's always, it was interesting to me to learn that Eric Johnson puts his chorus after his delay, because I always put my delay after my chorus and, you know, so little things like that, that you kind of pick up uh, along the way are, are just, fascinating to me as well yeah yeah because i was always taught that the delay should be like your last pedal in your chain pretty much right yeah well, he, I, he goes into his delays and then he uses a, a stereo chorus to split out for his clean sound after the delay whereas yeah. typically what i do is do like a ping pong delay to create the stereo thing after so which works great i mean it's it's obviously it's yeah. successful for him and and uh it's a you know one thing you learn very quickly is that there is no wrong way to do it yeah, you're he's not got such hurt a, anything. You're not going to break anything. It's just what works for what you're doing. He's got such a classic sound. Um, I love it. Um, yeah, I wanted just to dive into a couple quick questions about gear. I know you're a gearhead, you know, and yeah. guitar players in general we tend to be gearheads, you know. And so, just just off the bat, I think some of our listeners might dig on this too. You know, if you had to choose one, if you had to choose one overdrive pedal, what's going in your suitcase? Um, I would say the J rocket dude pedal, which, uh, uh, yeah, which is, uh, sort of his take on, on the Dumble thing. Okay. Um, but it's a little bit, um, I, I play a Fuchs amp. Uh, a lot of the times I have, I have a Fuchs overdrive Supreme and, uh, that's Dumble-esque. And I think the dude is very close to that. So it allows me to plug in and get a very similar sound to what I get when I'm using my big rig, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then uh, if you have to take one analog delay pedal with you, what's it going to be? Oh, that's I, I love delay pedals, and I have way too many of them, and I, I can never wait to get the next one that, that's coming out. So, that man, that's a tough question, an analog delay pedal. So one that I end up, if I'm going to go... If I, I have a little grab and go pedal board that has just a dude pedal, a tuner, a delay, yeah. and I think that's about it. That's all that's on there. And what's on there is actually a, a uh, uh, carbon copy deluxe. So it's the carbon yeah. copy. It's the version that has tap tempo on it. And so yeah. it lets me get the carbon copy thing, which I which is just that great straight ahead analog delay sits behind your playing, doesn't get in the way, and then being able to have tap tempo with it is just a bonus. So that that's probably for a utility analog delay that's the one i would throw in my my bag probably nice and then uh let's see one more you already mentioned you used the dumbbell amps um you gotta take a set of strings with you what is it a set of strings <laughs> what's, what's, uh, uh, well it depends on the guitar actually it it depends on the guitar uh, and, and uh when i'm playing a, a gibson scale length so 24 and three quarters i put on didario uh 10s and yeah. when I'm playing a, a Fender scale like 25 and a half, I go to uh, nine and a halfs. Mm. Okay. So that, and to me, that that keeps the tension the same between the two uh, the two scale lengths. Yeah, oh, I like this. I just I wanted to get into some gear because I think it's always fun. We don't get a chance <laughs> to talk gear with anybody all the time, so this is uh, this is fun. You know, I, I've been a Sweetwater customer 
uh, for a long time. In fact, I, I recently bought some home recording gear. And, you know, at first when I started buying little things like strings or guitar strap or whatever, I'd always get the phone call from Sweetwater. And I was like, right. why, you know, why do they do this? I was thinking to myself, they don't have to do this. You know, it's fine. Like everything arrives. It's perfect. That's good. You know, but over the years, I got to say more and more, I always appreciate the phone call. It's like, I like having the connection. It's like it's built some kind of trust or something like that with the consumer. And when I was buying a bigger purchase, I bought this Apogee Ensemble for my home recording studio. I got like nice. three, or four, three or four calls from people, you know, just kind of asking about it, checking in about the order, all this, that, and the next. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what is it about the Sweetwater culture um, as an employee working there that you guys have sort of cultivated and talked about and discussed that has helped your company become so successful over the last decade. I love just a little window into how you guys operate. There's surprisingly little discussion about it. Um, it, it all comes down from Chuck Surak. He established the company early on. Uh, you know, the, the story's out there, but he started as a, a little mobile recording studio in a VW bus and then got into retailing to his friends. Um, but always he he's just always always taken the same approach, which is basically the number one tenet is do the right thing. So whatever that means, whether that means you well whatever I mean whatever that means that's that's for yourself, for your customers, for your coworkers, uh, for the manufacturers, for the reps. You know, do the right thing in in every situation. But also it's just take care of the customer. What do we need to do to take care of the customer? And we find the best way to do that is to establish a relationship with the customer. Because if we know each other and like you say, there's a trust that develops there, then we can be more effective because very few customers have access to as much gear as we have here. And just the constant training we have with the manufacturers and the knowledge that the sales engineers have here is just off the charts. It's just, I'm astounded when I talk to those, those uh, folks up there, it's just absolutely incredible what, how much they know about everything. (laughs) And that's, that's the big challenge. And so being able to, as a customer tap into that because of that trust relationship, um, it's just a a huge, huge benefit for our, for our customers that I think as, as you've, you've noticed, I mean, I think it really pays off. It does. Yeah. So now I feel totally confident if I'm buying, you know, the smallest little thing that I need, that's still important or a larger purchase that, um, there's someone at least on the other end of the line that if something goes wrong, you know, I can reach out to, and it's not like you get that when you're buying, uh, things on Amazon, you know, you're kind of, you're going through this huge conglomerate, uh, and there's always a third party and, you know, so yeah, I really appreciate you guys have done things. And I think it's, like you said, really uh, contributed to your success. It's very inspiring. The campus is awesome. It looks like a very thriving community. So it's good to have these uh, things in music and that you guys give back to artists and everything and create opportunities is like awesome, I think. So thank you for all that. Yeah, well, thanks Thanks for saying so. It's Man, I, I even after now since 2005, it's 16 years since I've been back and every day I'm just, wow, I mean, I get to do this at, at yeah. this place. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. really pretty cool. Yeah, and we were lucky enough to be there. Isn't that right, Will Brom? We had a good time over there, didn't we? You no, know, I, I couldn't help but pull up my Sweetwater app and look at the oh. rocket dude. <laughs> oh, no, here we go. Yeah, Mitch, it's yeah, man. you again, man. It's It's been a couple of yeah. years. And um, I mean, I I think it goes without saying, you know, I, we're not the only people that, you know, we turn to your videos for insight on gear. I mean, talk about the last year being home researching stuff. 
you know, uh, your demos have been amazing. And, um, and like tacking off what Perry said, the, you know, the entire industry that Sweetwater is and, and the customer service, you know, shout out to Adam Chessie, who's my rep. Great guy. The two, one, three area codes, you know, it's always like yeah, a two, one, three area code. I should just save the number, but, um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and, and speaking of your, you know, your setup there specifically, I remember when you gave us a tour the day that we did those videos for radial, uh, you showed us the performance hall and and maybe the recording studio, but I'm fascinated, as I'm sure a lot of the listeners are, on any you know new insight or just really special insight that you have on modern recording techniques, uh, whether it's really Geary oriented or really simple idea oriented. Well, let me put it this way: if if I was going to make one recommendation to people who are getting into recording and, and are doing some recording and that's to we all these days are so reliant on staring at a screen and so we get our DAW opened up we get our virtual instruments opened up our plugins and we're setting a lot of things by looking at them you know we're setting the knobs and we're and i mean I'm, I'm guilty of this i i am obsessive enough that i want all the knobs to be set to even numbers or yes. you know, whatever. And, you know, it's easy to do that when you're doing things by eye. So my recommendation is use your ears as much as you can. Mm -hmm. So turn away from the monitor, put the monitor off to the side, work with your speakers and with your ears and not so much with your eyes and what you're seeing on the screen, because it's easy to edit things by looking at the waveform, but that may or may not be what sonically is the best thing to do. And it's easy to make settings on a compressor based on where the knobs are supposed to be, you know, the recommended you're, you're on 1176. And so you put them at the Dr. Pepper settings, 10 and two, you know, which is based on an old jingle or whatever, but uh, you know, that may not be the right setting. And, and if you're just setting it by eye and by habit, uh, you may miss out on being able to get a better result by listening and turning some knobs and don't be afraid to just turn the knobs and listen and, and hear what something's doing to your music. That's great. Yeah. Not forgetting to use our ears and just listen. I mean, it's no different than it, than interacting with musicians, you know, or, right. yeah. or even playing guitar. I mean, it's, it's easy to sit down. The guitar is an easy instrument to sit down and just play patterns and play, you know, we've got our blues scale. And so everything we play is within that blues scale. But if you, try to eliminate that pattern and step outside it and just play with your ears, if you will, uh, it can take you into entirely new, new areas, whether you're composing or soloing or improvising or whatever you might be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's, that's great. I, um, I want to ask if you might have any hints you could drop us of any sort of any new things coming out? Obviously not crossing legal boundaries, but you're in the know. <laughs> yeah. We're on a need to um, basis. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's all, all kinds of, uh, of uh, cool things that are, that are happening. And like I said, I, I, I was saying earlier, I mean, I just get so excited when I see these things come in and I see the possibilities and half of the fun for me is to, to, wait and see what people do with stuff so there'll be this incredible new feature in a daw and i'm like well i, I know what i might do with that if i was going to do something but man I, I bet somebody's going to do something phenomenal with that and i can't wait to hear what it is so you'll uh, find out first my my last question is is more for you personally on how how have you been affected in the last year and and you seem like a person who who 
doesn't waste any opportunities. And I mean, this last year inevitably gives us a lot more time alone when we make decisions of, of probably learning new things. What, what has changed for you in the last year? What have you learned? What, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, and, uh, you know, with all the uh, sad stories we hear and all the obviously negative things that are going on and problems in the world and things, it's it's also been fascinating to watch some of the positive things that have happened as musicians have connected online and as we've seen so many new educational opportunities show up online and and uh, you know it, it's easy when you're locked away by yourself to for me anyway it's easy to to uh, put on Netflix and wow a week went by <laughs> and uh, and I I don't know if I really did anything or not and so I, I really tried to be conscious of that and, and keep moving forward. And, and, uh, I, I took it as an opportunity to practice and to try to work on new things. I took it as many musicians have, I took it as an opportunity to upgrade my rig and try and get things kind of optimized in my room set up. Um, but I also, you know, we were, we were locked down here at Sweetwater just like everybody else. And so I worked from home for a number of months. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, I, uh, bought myself a little lighting rig and a, and a couple of little cameras. And so, from that time period, that March to July time period, whatever it was, I don't remember exactly, uh, the videos you're seeing of me were from my home. Yep. And right. so I learned how to do videos and I bought a video editing program and I learned how to edit and do all of that kind of stuff that I really had never gotten into in the past at all. So that was uh, very educational and and uh, has helped me even now coming back to the building when I have this incredible uh, production team to work with that runs the cameras and does the editing and they're, they're so phenomenal and so, so expert and so fast, but I have a much better understanding now of what it takes and, and how to, I, I guess even how to be on camera to make it easier for them to do their job and for there to be less editing and more, uh, uh, you know, more just doing it kind of a thing. So yeah, I, I really tried to, you know, tried to stay positive. My wife and I tried to stay very positive. We tried to eat healthy. We tried to uh, stay on top of all those kind of things and, and not just sit and, uh, and uh, keep moving forward. You know, I, I, it, I guess it was an opportunity underneath all the, the silver lining was, I guess there were opportunities there. I love that you brought that up about um, learning how to operate more of the technological stuff. So you with the video and video editing, that's definitely been the case for me with <clears throat> obviously audio recording. Um, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've been in a studio session in in a studio other than my room the past year. And even just last week, I definitely felt like, first of all, wow, it's really nice not running your own session. It's really nice (laughs) having a professional sound engineer running your session. And even just the pace you move at with punching or with changing this, or it's just, you get more of a 360 insight when you have to, you know, be in the trenches yourself, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Man, thank you for the the insight. And I mean, I'll, I'll pass it back to John in a sec. But, um, you know, you're you're an inspiration and you're obviously, you know, always looking forward and adopting new things. And that's something we could all learn from. So, man, I, I think it's the way to be. It's it's to me, it's just fun. I mean, why, you know, uh, you're. Chuck, the owner of Sweetwater, likes to say, if you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. And certainly with the case of technology and and trying to improve yourself and things, I I find that very true. So I've tried to take that to heart and to always be learning something. If you learn one thing every day, you've learned 365 things in a year. So it adds up fast. 
That's so true. And, you know, I don't think that we give you enough credit for being a real educator for our community, Mitch, because you really have taught us all so much about things. Like, I remember one time wondering what a a, a Universal Audio 1176 compressor did, because all the session guys I work with talk about how that's the compressor or the preamp. And so I would go on Sweetwater and I'd learn about, watch that video or the difference between a small condenser and a large condenser and all the different sounds. And I've learned so much from watching your videos. And I know a lot of our listeners who are predominantly guitar players and stuff have checked you guys out. And I just want to give you credit for just being like a great teacher, but also somebody who's just, you're a fun guy to, to watch and listen to. Um, you're kind of like this Jacques Cousteau of gear where like, when, <laughs> when you talk, we listen, Mitch. <laughs> you know, or David Attenborough never, or something. Never, never, yeah. I never thought of myself that way, but thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. No, I, I, I truly do appreciate that. I mean, we have a we have a good time doing all that stuff here, and yeah. it's not just me. There's a whole team of people here that are doing videos and writing articles and doing content and production teams and things, and, and uh, I guess a lot of the time I get to be the one on the camera, but uh, it, it, we have a great time doing it, and it, it's so gratifying to know that it helps. Yeah. And, and people are, are getting something out of it. So thank you for saying so. Of course. Well, you know, in New West, man, we love coming to Indiana. We love Fort Wayne and we've played a lot in South Bend and Indianapolis. So when we're when we're starting to move around again, we're certainly going to come back out and make Sweetwater a stop for us to come hang and who knows, maybe debut some new fancy digital jazz guitar. No, that won't happen. That will never happen. <laughs> we'll do. I'll take you up on that. And yes, please, please do come back. I mean, we we love to have you here. We'd love to have you you back out again, and and anytime you're in the area, I'll of of course come and see you play, is because I love watching you guys play and, and hearing your music too. So so please let me know, and and uh, I hope we can connect in person soon. We will, man. And just in closing, before you go, you got to tell the listeners how high do you like the action on your guitars, Mitch? Uh, how high do I like the action on the guitars? I would say medium. Medium. I, I, right. I don't like to. I, I practice a fair amount with electric guitars unplugged. Uh -huh. And I don't like to hear buzzing and rattling when I'm doing that. So I like it high enough to where the strings are playing clean, but not so high that you've got to fight it too much. Mm -hmm. Got it. Got it. Well, I don't know. I mean, would you mind entertaining us with a closeout and just say, I'm Mitch Gallagher, and this is the High Action Podcast, just to close out this episode in that brilliant voice? That you have. There you go. Sure. How about thanks for joining me here on the High Action Podcast? I'm Mitch Gallagher. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Thanks for joining me here on the High Action Podcast. I'm Mitch Gallagher. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.